welcome to the Destiny Podcast. We hope this message blesses you. I've been traveling since the beginning of 2011, just different places in the world. Uh, this year I've been in the Philippines and Finland, Germany. Um, I'm off to Costa Rica next week. Just I was in the US as well. And it's it's really adjusting to all of these different time zones and sometimes my sleep gets really messed up. <laughs> so, so as I said, I've been travelling since about the beginning of 2011, just sharing my experience and what I'm discovering about God as a father. Um, and that really began for me when I, when I first became a believer. I think I mentioned yesterday, you know, in Matthew chapter 23, verse 9, uh, where Jesus, you know, Jesus says, don't call anyone on earth father, for you have one father in heaven. And I kind of focused on the don't call anyone father, you know, which kind of my, my orphan heart loved. <laughs> I'm my own man and uh, nobody's going to tell me what to do and all of that kind of stuff. I, kind of, I really lived my life that way, but God wasn't speaking. That's not what he was saying to me. He was saying to me, John, you've been without a father your whole life, but I am your father and you have a father in heaven. Um, but it didn't really become reality for me because there were issues in my heart. And this afternoon and, and tomorrow I'll, I'll talk about some of those issues. But it prevented me coming into that place where I could see God in that way. And so my, whole, my Christian life was just living God as my master and me trying to be the best servant I could be to God. But in 2005, in 2004, I went to Toronto, uh, the, the church there. And people were talking about God, Daddy God and all that, and I, I just wanted to hit them because I thought, grow up, you know, Daddy God. But there was something there in the atmosphere that there was a presence of God that really touched me. And so I went back the following year with my wife to they have a one-month school for leaders. Um, I was still pastoring at that time. And I heard a couple called James and Denise Jordan talking about the Father Heart of God. And I thought, yeah, I've heard this stuff, I know this stuff, I've taught this stuff, you know. Um, but as they began to share their journey in Christianity and life and, and their experience of God being a father to them, it really began to tear my heart up. Um, all my buttons were being pushed, <laughs> you know. Uh, all the pain that I'd covered up with being a tough guy, being, you know, you know what I'm talking about. You, you put the face on so that nobody knows what's really happening inside you. Um, and I'd lived my whole life that way, but it all was starting to come apart. It was all starting to unravel as James Jordan is sharing his story and I identified with so much of it, you know. Um, the, the loneliness, the brokenness, the fear, the insecurity, the lack of, of parenting, the lack of love, the different kinds of violence and abuse and all kinds of stuff. And it was just ripping me apart. Um, I remember wanting to hit him. <laughs> I'm going to punch this guy. <laughs> I was a pastor when I was thinking this, you know. Um, don't let pastors fool you. They, they just think the same as you do. Uh, but instead what I did was I left the room and I went and hid in this little alcove where no one could find me and I just cursed the world for a while. 
and there was just all this anger and pain because I realized that I began to look back over my life and understand that just how difficult it had been and all of the decisions I'd taken in my life, all of the behavior I'd had in my life was driven by all the trauma that I'd experienced. You know, violence, gangs, drugs, booze. My whole life had, had been a, re a reaction to the pain that I carried. And so all the stupid things I did, all the, you know, getting arrested and getting into fights and all of that was a reaction and a response to the pain that I was carrying inside me. But I never ever understood that because I just covered it up and covered it up and covered it up. You know, being the tough guy, being the hard man and all of that stuff. Um, and suddenly it was being ripped apart and I couldn't do anything about it. I couldn't stuff it back down. And again, <laughs> you know, it's almost like the lid had been taken off and thrown away. But I, I came home from that that experience thinking, what the heck happened? You know, um, but a few weeks after coming home from Toronto, I was preparing my sermon and I heard, I heard God speak to me. I don't know if it was audible or in my heart, or but it was, it was just so real, you know? And he just said to me, son, I, I just started crying. I've cried a lot, like inner healing and all that kind of stuff, emotional healing. But these, these were different tears. This, this voice, this word touched me somewhere in my heart that, that I never thought existed. I didn't know my way there. <laughs> but, but it, and all I said was, son, they said it, it was so tender, but so powerful. Um, and all of the questions I had about, you know, God, if you're good, why did my dad die? Why was my dad sick? And all of those things, all of those questions just didn't matter anymore. Because in, in that, he, he told me who I was. You know, I'd spent my whole life trying to figure out how to be John, how to be a man, um, with no one to show me. You know, Burt Re you know the actor Burt Reynolds? Yeah, most of you are old enough, you guys might not. He was a Hollywood actor, and he was quite a tough guy. Um, he liked bourbon and women and fighting. <laughs> and he was asked a question on the Johnny Carson show. And he's saying, you know, Bert, you're a real man and you're what every man wants to be and every woman wants to be with you. And, and he said, what makes a man a man? And he said, well, you know, in the, in the South of America, we've got a saying, you're not a man until your father says you are. And then he said this, and really powerful. He said, my father never told me and that has always been a problem. And I, I just thought that's exactly where I was at. I'd never had a man, I'd never had a father to say, John, I'm proud of you. I'm proud of the man that you are. I'm proud of the man that you're becoming. You, you make me proud to be your dad. I never had any of that. And here was God doing that in just one word. Just when he just said, son. You know, he could have revealed himself as, you know, John, I'm your father. But he didn't. He told me who I was. And I realized that I could only be that son in relation to him. And my whole life... The violence, the drinking, the drugs, the, the sex and rock and roll and all that kind of stuff was just a little boy trying to find out what a man looked like, what it meant to be a man, um, and looking for someone who could show me that. And he did that in, in a split second. And so the whole, 
the last 12 years has really just been about learning to trust him and, and depend upon him. You know, we, we talk about having faith in God and we can faith it out and I declare the promises of God and, and a lot of times I think that's just presumption. God hasn't said I'm going to do this. We just presume and I'm going to declare it and it, that'll make it happen and, and then it doesn't happen and we get disappointed. But I've just been learning to depend upon the person. And, when, and, then, and walking in that trust, walking in that dependence, learning what it looks like to be a son. You know, he told me that, he gave me that identity, but, but I've just been learning what, it, what does that look like in my life? It'll look different in your life to, to what it looks like in mine. You know, I was in a place where I was pastoring at that time uh, and I began sharing this with the church and with, pardon me, with other folks. And then in 2008, Father asked me to stop pastoring. So I quit pastoring in, in August 2008. And I thought I'm going on to bigger and better things, you know, stuff is like, yeah, you know, I've, I've, I've got to a place in God where I'm, I'm going forward and, and I couldn't even get a job as a, as a door stacker in Sainsbury's, you know. I just couldn't get a job for more than two years. You see, I, I knew how to do it myself. You know, I was an entrepreneur as well. Before I became a Christian, I ran nightclubs, second-hand clothes businesses and other bits and pieces. I used to promote bands and manage bands and put on music events. So I knew how to make things happen and, and it was almost like God wanted to strip that from me, my ability to make things happen. And it took me about 18 months to realise that that's what was happening. And it was difficult. You know, my wife was then the main wage earner in the house. I'd quit the pastorate, I'd quit a salary and all kinds of things. And, and that's quite difficult. And I never thought it would be difficult for me until I was in the situation. You know, because I had this broken idea of what a man is. A man works and he provides and all of that kind of, you know. And at the end of 2010, I went to New Zealand for a month to spend time with Father Heart Ministries there. And that really impacted me. And that's where I began to, the doors began to open up to travelling um, as, as I joined the ministry and became a part of the ministry. I had no thoughts of becoming a part of Father Heart Ministries when I, I began that journey. I was only interested in, in pursuing this revelation of the Father, of being a son. Um, and these were guys I knew who, who walked in this and who taught this and, and carried it. And so I just hung around them and suddenly found myself being a part of them, <laughs> you know. And as I look back over the, the, these last years of travelling, I realise there's been a thread that runs through all of what I've been doing and what I've been teaching. And my passion in this time is to help God's people to see how we've misunderstood who he is. We've, we've lost the, the true picture of what he's really like. And we've forgotten that he's father. You know, I, I grew up in Glasgow. Uh, my mum grew up in the east end of Glasgow as a Protestant. My dad grew up in the, the southwest of, of Glasgow as a Roman Catholic. I grew up in the Catholic Church because back in the 1960s, and you, you, you basically were brought up in your dad's religion. 
Neither of my mum or dad were were religious. Neither of them went to church, but they made sure that we went. You know, um, but but growing up in the Catholic Church, God just seemed in a permanently bad mood. He was just always angry. You know, it's like, and it just. <laughs> It just seemed as though God wasn't really a very nice guy. I was always scared of putting a foot wrong. You know, you would get that, like, be careful, God's watching you. You know, and that terrified me as a, as a kid. I was scared of God. And I remember after my dad died when I was 11 years old, I would wake up in the middle of the night in a sweat, thinking I'm not good enough to go to heaven. I'm going to go to hell or I'm going to go to spend, like, five million years in purgatory or something, you know. Um, you know, God's not pleased with me because I was conceived in outside of marriage, which, you know, the Bible says there's a curse on. And, and there's this conflict in, in the Catholic family and the Protestant family about how awful this is and what a stigma this is in the 1960s. And... And I just felt because of that, I had to try harder to please God. I had, I had to pray more. I had to con go to confession more and confess my sins to the priest more. And I hated going to confession because you never knew which priest you were going to get. And the old guy, the old priest, he used to leave, you know, in the confessional box, there's a little curtain that the priest can't see who you are when you're confessing your sins. But the old priest used to leave the curtain open so they could see who it was. <laughs> I was terrified that I would get him and he could see me when I was telling him all these things. So I had to make up sins that weren't really bad. <laughs> but I just felt as though I had to work really hard to please God and, and yet I would wake up sweating thinking, I'm not good enough to get there. It doesn't matter what I do, I'm not, I, I'm not going to make it. And that's terrifying as an 11 year old boy. I was an altar boy and I, I remember about eight or nine years old saying to people, I want to go to Africa to tell them about Jesus. I wasn't, I wasn't born again or anything, or, but I guess somehow I sensed a call of God in my life, but I didn't understand that. And then there were all these rules that I didn't understand, I wasn't quite clear on. I knew Catholics had different rules to Protestants and and, but I had to try and keep these rules to, to make God happy and stop God from punishing me. And it just seemed to be filled with fear and, and, and just trying to avoid God's anger. I wasn't happy at all. And I think this part of being a son for me in the last 12 years has been beginning to recognise where we've misunderstood who he is and how he treats us and how he views us. And I want to talk a little bit about that this morning, about what is that misunderstanding? Where did it begin? How did it happen? You know, because when you read the Bible, everything's rosy in the garden, you know, in, in the Garden of Eden. And then suddenly this harmony is disrupted and, and this wonderful loving father that Adam and his wife knew changes into a monster who punishes and, and we have to hide from because from his vengeance and his retribution and you know there was this relationship of son and father but it, it suddenly became man and his creator a distance was created and, and so we, we brought in rules and sacrificial systems and I put all of this religious 
system in place just to keep God happy, to try and keep his anger away from us and, and stop him from judging us, stop, stop him from punishing us. But as I've read through the Bible, I see that that's maybe not truly what happened. You know, Peter says in, in, in his, his first letter in chapter 1, If you call on him as a father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were redeemed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. So he's saying, you know, if you're a believer, you have been redeemed from the futile ways of life, the futile thinking, the futile behavior, the meaningless lifestyle that you have inherited from those before you. Now, Peter's a Jew. He's writing to Jews. You know, he was called the apostle to the Jews. And so he's not just talking about Gentiles and, and pagan worship and idolatry. He's writing to them and he's, he's very familiar with Jewish tradition. And he's saying, the traditions you inherited from your ancestors were futile ways. They were they're fruitless, they're, they're empty, they're meaningless. You know, the, the ceremonies, the sacrifices, the keeping the law, it's... He's speaking about their spiritual lives that they've inherited. And he's saying that the sacrifices and the rules and the law keeping, all aimed at making the angry God happy, it's a futile way of life. It, it bears no fruit. It brings no fulfillment. There's no lasting solution because you have to repeat it day after day after day after day. And you never know if you've done enough to keep him happy. And he said, and that way of life that you, you've been living, you inherited that from, your, from previous generations, from your ancestors, because they have just handed on all that they've, they did as well. And you're just perpetuating a futile way of life. And Paul kind of echoes it a little bit in Galatians chapter 3, when he said, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And Paul is speaking to people who are well aware of their inability to, to follow the law, to keep the law. You know, in Israel, even today, the religious leaders believe that if every Jew living in Israel keeps the law perfectly for 24 hours, Messiah will come back. And of course, the religious people keep the law perfectly, according to them. And it's ordinary people like you and me who, who, who make a mess of things. You know, so we're under this curse of the law because of our inability to keep it. And Paul's saying, but you've been redeemed out of that. No, you're striving to become righteous. You've been redeemed, you've been rescued from that. We often think of redeemed as being bought back, but that's not always what it means. It, it sometimes just means rescued. And so what Paul's saying is you have been rescued from that way of life. The emptiness of religious ritual, your efforts at pleasing God, the, your, your attempts to, to reach some kind of spiritual high. All of those observances that we go through today even. You know, we might not do, we might not slaughter animals and put them on the, the altar and burn them. And, but we do all kinds of things to try and please God. Making sure we have a quiet time so that God's happy with us making sure we're at the meetings or we're at the prayer meetings, making sure we tithe and, or give offerings and as sacrifices to the Lord. It's the same futile kind of life. And for both Jew and Gentile, this has been the pattern of their lives. But Peter and Paul are saying, but you've been brought back from that. You've been rescued from that empty and futile way of life. 
and the curse which you have come under has been removed. You're no longer under it. And today in Christianity, I think we do the same thing. We go back to that futile way of life that we've handed, been handed down from previous generations. Well-meaning, but, but still laboring under the same problem the Jews had of trying to keep God happy. And it just leads to futility, disappointment, disillusionment, frustration. And so many people walk away from church and it's interesting, a lot of the people I know who've walked away from church still believe in God and still want to walk with God. They just don't want anything to do with the system. I mean, out there in the world, it's the religious system that people don't want anything to do with. They have no problem with spirituality or some concept of a, of a divine being, but they don't want to be part of the system. And James, and sorry, Peter and Paul are saying, you've been rescued from the system. You know, a lot of what I did as a Christian was a discipline, but, but never a pleasure. <laughs> I had to do it because that's what God required of me. I had to do the right Christian thing. And for 20 years or more, my, my whole Christianity was based on doing the right thing, avoiding the wrong thing. And it seems as though our Christianity has is, is, is lived that way, trying to discern between what's right and what's wrong. Am I doing the right thing now? Did I do the wrong thing then? And it's, it's almost like Christianity is driven by fear. We're scared of getting it wrong. We're scared of being wrong. We're scared of being judged wrong by leaders, by, by brothers and sisters. And the whole thing is fear-driven. That's not an enjoyable way to live your life. But Peter and Paul are saying, you've been rescued from that, guys. Why are, you, why are you going back into it? That's what he says to the Galatians, isn't it, Paul? He says, foolish Galatians, why are you returning to what you once knew? Why are you going back to that? You've been rescued from it. And we have this whole industry in Christianity that says, this is how you be a Christian. People write whole books about how you can be a Christian and what you should look like and what, what's acceptable and what's unacceptable. You know, how to be holy, how not to be holy and how to be a good Christian rather than a bad Christian. You know, I, I, I make fun, I've, I go to Germany quite a lot and I make fun of my German friends. And I, I say, you know, people set rules of what is the conduct for a Christian in, in different nations. And that's the problem. In different nations, the conduct standards are different for Christians. And in, so in Germany, in the north of Germany, if you drink alcohol, you're probably going to hell. But no one seems to bother if you have a cigarette. In southern Germany, if you don't drink alcohol, you're probably going to hell. <laughs> but if you have a cigarette, you've, you're, you're, you've lost your salvation. You know, I know that, that's an exaggeration, but, but I like to tease my German friends with it. But, you know, in, in one nation, you have two different standards for Christians. It's crazy. You know, you, you learn how to be a Christian in Britain and then you move to South America and it's different standards. And you have to learn a new way of being a Christian. That's nuts. That's just man-made systems. Because we don't know what it is to walk with God as he truly is. So we have to create a system by which we can control our lives. And you know what I've discovered 
in this journey of sonship, he's not interested in what I do or don't do. He doesn't care. He's not interested in whether I'm a bad Christian or a good Christian. Because that's not the lens through which he views us. He doesn't judge you by those standards. You know, we learn the, the Bible so that we can learn what to do to be good. We listen to sermons and go to meetings to find out what God's will for us is so that we can be good Christians. We're loyal to denominations and leaders and ministries. And, and there's nothing wrong with that, with, with forming those kind of bonds and, and loyalties. But, but when it comes to establishing and deepening your spirituality, it's futile. It's a futile way of life. We've based our relationship with God on a narrow criteria of reading the Bible and trying to do what it says. And I don't know about you, but, but I'm quite happy to say that has not worked for me. That has not made my Christian life happy to try and live that way. Because he's not asking us to live like that. That's what we've put in place because we don't understand his heart towards us. And if Peter and Paul are correct, if we are being redeemed from this empty way of life, from these futile behaviours that's been handed down to us from previous generations, what does that look like? You know, that we read about the, the Pharisees in the Bible and, and we make fun of them. We make fun of the Pharisees, don't we? And But we do the same thing. You know, they had standards for being a good Jew. We have standards for being a good Christian. They read the Bible trying to understand it and find God's ways. And, and when the one whom the Bible speaks about, Jesus, stands in their midst, they want to kill him. I wonder if Jesus would get us pew in any of our churches if he came in smelly feet and unwashed hair and, you know. We just live the same way with the, the things that have been handed down to us from previous generations without questioning it. But if we've been rescued from that religious system, what does it look like? Well, I think the Bible gives us a blueprint for, for humanity's relationship with God. And I think we see it in the Garden of Eden. You know, when God brought man to life, and began to establish relationship, that's the pattern for all of mankind. That's what he intended. If Adam had never sinned, we would be living in that kind of relationship with God, the same way he did, the same way his wife did. Because Father's desire has always been relationship and intimacy, connectedness, not about obedience. And we, we look at Genesis and we think that's where the whole story began. But it goes way back beyond that. It began in the heart of God. Where the three in one inhabit eternity and there's void and there's darkness and a voice speaks into the darkness and says, let there be light. And that was the beginning of, of the natural world being created. But your life was purposed in God way back there in the void and the darkness. You were known to him back then. You know, he, said, he says to Jeremiah 
in chapter 1 of Jeremiah's prophecy, before you were in your mother's womb, I knew you. Well, before Jeremiah was in his mother's womb, he didn't exist. But God says, I knew you. Because way back in that darkness and emptiness and void, he conceived each one of us in his heart. He knew what you were going to look like. He knew the colour of your hair or lack of, whichever, you know. <laughs> Sorry, mate. <laughs> you know, but he knew what you were going to sound like and look like. He knew who you were going to be. And so he, he can say, I knew you before you were even in your mother's womb. And so this voice which speaks into the darkness and says, let there be light. In his heart, he's already beginning to prepare a, a world for you to come and inhabit and relate to him in. Why did he have to do it that way? I don't know. If I knew that, I'd be God. But that's what he chose to do. And so he said, let there be light. Let there be an expanse between the waters to separate the water from, from the water. Let the water under the sky be gathered in one place. Let dry ground appear. Let the land produce vegetation. Let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day and the night. Let water teem with living creatures. Let birds fly above the earth. Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds. Livestock and creatures that move along the ground and wild animals. And it was so and God saw that it was good. And we always think of good as opposed to bad. <laughs> but that's not what God was saying. He wasn't saying this is good and before it was bad. He's saying, wow, this is beautiful, this is joyful, this is bountiful, this is prosperous and pleasant. And then he comes to the final act. It's time for this paradise to be populated. And, and so he, he doesn't send the angels. He, he's bringing this entirely new life form into existence. Different from all that's gone before, different from the angels, different from the birds in the air, the fish in the sea, the, the animals in the land. And he said... Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And not only, you know, man is given a, is brought into being in a, a whole different way from the rest of creation. The rest of creation is spoken into being, but God himself forms the man from the dust of the earth. I don't know what that looks like. Did God have hands that he, he shaped and molded in this form? And creation is good, it's beautiful, it's bountiful, it's plentiful. But when man is on the scene, it's interesting, isn't it, when you read it, you know, after each time God sees something done, he says, it's good, it's perfect, it's beautiful. It's... But when the man is suddenly brought to life, he said, it's very good. It's like man has been raised, the appearance of man on the earth has raised the bar. <laughs> Humanity is is more than just the pinnacle of creation. It's almost like we completed God's creation. Because we were the purpose for it coming into existence. 
And not only are we created differently, but we are given dominion over the, over the, cre- the creation. He blessed them. It's another way of saying he put his favour on them. He, you know, we say things to each other like, oh, bless you. But actually in the Bible, when you pronounce a blessing, you're, it's an expectation of that taking place in your life. You know, so when Paul greets his readers of his letters and he says, blessings to you from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ, he's saying, there is a blessing that you can take a hold of here. And so when it says that God blessed them, it means he gave them something, he put something in them that enabled them to, to have dominion over the earth. And he didn't do that for the rest of creation. Mankind were the only ones he blessed to fruitfulness and dominion. You know, it, it says that the Lord God formed it. That means to he squeezed the man into shape from the dust of the ground and blew hard to inflate the man so that he became a breathing soul. And what happened was, you know, God spoke and the creation arranged and organized itself. But when he brought the man to life, he breathed into his nostrils. Now, I couldn't do that from here with you. I would have to get up really close. And so God gets up really, really close and personal with the man in a way that he didn't get up close and personal with the rest of creation. And something that's in God leaves him and imparts itself into the man. So that what brings the man to life is something of the life that's in God himself. You as a human being have something of the life of God in you even before you knew him. Paul tells us in Acts 17 we are all his offspring. It means that the whole of humanity has something of the life of God in them even before they they come into relationship with him. And so he imparts something of himself into mankind. This is very unique. God's relationship with this creature is different from the whole of the rest of creation. Creating was at at a distance, but this man, it's up close, it's up personal. It's a mark of of God's relationship with mankind. So what happened? How did we, you know, we have this up-close personal relationship that God instigated. But today we seem to live at a distance and we're trying to reach up to bring him down. And What happened? Because God wanted this up-close and personal intimacy and relationship. He was the one that brought it about. He was the one that instigated it. I think that's part of what it means to be made in the image of God, this desire for intimacy, this desire for someone to know is up close and personal. And so we have this unique relationship between mankind and and God. And it's interesting, why was the man made last of all? Why was it? Can you imagine if if you were that, that human being that was first breathed life into you? Can you imagine if, if God had made you first and then sat you there and watched while the whole, all of creation unfolded? That'd be amazing. Wouldn't it like God, you're sitting beside God and he says, let there be light and it's like, whoa! You know, and let the fish appear, let the, let the ground appear, let the stars appear and, and it's just like, Wow! seeing the whole universe being created and, and at the very beginning 
But God didn't do that. In fact, the very last thing the ma- that he did was to breathe into the man. And then the Bible is quite clear that God rested from his work. And so when the man, this breath goes into the man's nostrils and he opens his eyes, God has stopped working. And so the man's first day in existence, all he knows is God at rest. He doesn't know what it is to have a working father. (laughs) You see, children copy their parents. Whether you like it or not, you are like your mum and dad and you become more like them as you get older. I don't know if that's good news or bad news for you, but it's a fact. And Adam would have copied his father. And God didn't want him to have to try to exert his strength to make things happen. And so he brought him into a place where he only knew rest and peace. It's interesting, isn't it? Jesus was birthed out of that same place of rest at the Father's bosom. Adam was born into it. Jesus returned to it so that we can experience what Adam had in the garden. That's why he says, I'm preparing a place for you so that where I am, you also will be. He's returning to that place of rest and peace so that we might experience what Adam experienced in the garden when he opened his eyes and saw love looking into him for the very first time. See, that's what, the, that's what the gospel's all about. That's what the cross was about, returning us to what the man knew in the garden because that was God's design for us, that we would know what it is to live in relationship with him and his rest. That's why the writer of Hebrews says in, in chapter 4, there remains a rest for the people of God. He's referring to that place Jesus has prepared where we go in Christ to rest in the Father's bosom and know his peace. We think we have to work and create and and make the kingdom go happen and the kingdom already has happened. It's already in existence. The battle has already been won. There is nothing for you to do except enter his rest in the place Jesus has prepared for you. Now, we know that the man did work because he was told to take care of the garden, to, to subdue creation. But what did that look like living out of a place of rest? What kind of ease did, did the man live in? What kind of rhythm was that? Walking out of it and rest and to subdue the earth, to take dominion. Because that was all the man knew. That's what he was birthed into. His first day as a conscious being was God's day of rest. His last bit of work was unseen by humanity. We only have a written record of it. No one, no one No human being witnessed that. That's what we were intended for. And so Adam just copied God at rest instead of God at work. And he only knew what it was to be loved, to be provided for, to be comforted, to to be intimate, to be known. Adam wasn't driven. He didn't have to prove to God that he's capable and competent. He didn't have to compete with his wife 
to be the best at Dominion. <laughs> and there wasn't pressure on him to produce. You know, we, we, we have this pressure on us. We have to produce something to prove our worth. And I think that's the cause of a lot of modern day depression. Because you never know if you've proved yourself worthy enough. You never know if you've produced enough. And the man wasn't under that kind of pressure. He would have had no concept of depression or anxiety or worry or fear or death. No concept of those things. They didn't exist. And what a difference from modern life. Modern Christianity where, where spirituality is measured by our knowledge, our activity. But what he wants is for us to live in this place of rest where we know the impartation of the life that is in him been poured into us. Just like it was with the man. This was the life of a father and a son. You know, Luke chapter 3 verse 38 is the end of, of Luke making a, a note of Jesus' genealogy. You know, so-and-so begat, so-and-so, and so-and-so so -and -so was the son of, and so-and-so was the son of. And it comes right down to say, Adam, the son of God. And so th the relationship in the garden was not master and servant or, or creator and creature. It was father and son. Luke is quite clear, Adam, the son of God. And what did that look like in a perfect world? I, I, I can't even begin to imagine. There was trust, there was safety, there was freedom, there was total openness. Adam hid nothing of himself. You know, we all hide bits of ourselves. You know, I'll, I'll show a bit of myself to you, but I'll hide that bit from you, Rebecca, and I'll show you a different part of me. That's how we live our lives. We show bits of ourselves to certain people and bits of ourselves to other people. But Adam didn't do that. He, he was totally open with nothing to hide whatsoever. In fact, he was naked and wasn't ashamed of it. He was not self-conscious about it at all. You know, I remember as a kid when I first started playing football and getting into the showers with all the other guys and it's like trying to cover yourself up because it's like, you know, it's like <laughs> comparing yourself, you know. Adam didn't have that fear or that, that concern. He was totally unself-conscious. And everything he needed was there, provided by for his father. And he's just lived in relationship. For how long? A thousand years? A million years? We don't know. We don't know. He wasn't bound down and, and offering sacrifices, trying to seek God's face. And God, what's your will for today? He just lived in the life that exists in God himself. And that, that's one of the things I've been learning in, in walking this life of sonship, that a son is someone who lives in response to the life that's poured into him from God himself. A son, a daughter, is someone who learns to receive that life of God that brings them life. You know, it's in, my, my wife was was made redundant last year and she was looking for God's will. You know,
know, God, is this job your will? Is that job your will? And one day the Lord said to her, Fiona, you're asking the wrong question. And she was shocked. You know, she was kind of like, but God, this, you know, what's your will? That's worked for me my whole Christian life. I said, yeah, but you're in a different place of relationship with me now. That doesn't work anymore. And she said, so what's the right question? And he said to her, you should be asking, will this bring me life? You see, Irene said that the glory of God is man fully alive. If you find what brings you life, you will be glorifying God. Because you will find your fulfillment, you will find your joy, your peace in that place. And the life that flows from him. That's what we were created for. That's what we were brought into this world for. To be alive. To, for the life of God to be flowing through us, flowing in us. Just the way it did with Adam in the garden. To have the same intimacy, to have the same freedom, the same unself-consciousness, the same openness of heart. And for however long that went on, it must have been amazing. You know, walking in this life of sonship, we get a little taste of it. But to, to know what that was fully like is just, my mind can't conceive of it. It's too big. It's too expansive. But we come to a crucial point in the history of mankind in Genesis chapter 3. Because we're introduced to someone else in the garden. And we read that the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Wow. So we're introduced to this creature that we translate as the serpent. Now I don't know about you, but I've never seen any talking snakes. And neither did the woman. The, the word we translate serpent is a Hebrew word which means to hiss. But it, it means like a conjurer, one who whispers in your ear to beguile you. So basically we have this creature, whatever he is, I don't know, was he a fallen angel or something else? But he is beguiling the woman with twisted words. <laughs> and he's, he's implying to her, he, he appeals to her pure desire to be more like her father. She wants to be like God, of course. You know, isn't that the desire of us as Christians? We want to be like Jesus. And he whispered to the woman, No, God's keeping a secret from you. He's not telling you the full story. 
because he knows that if you eat that, you will be like him. Well, who doesn't want to be like that? Holy, pure, beautiful, all love, full of life and joy. He whispers the same things to us. You know, if you do this, you will be like Jesus. And he drags us back into that futile way of life that the gospel rescues us from. The law keeping, the rule keeping, the, the being a good person kind of life. He does this, this is what he does to the women. God's hiding something from you. He's afraid that if you eat this, you will be like him, you'll be his equal. Isn't that funny? Because that's what he wanted to be. In Ezekiel, if you read in Ezekiel and, and in Isaiah, this personality that we call Satan said, I will ascend and I will, I will set myself on the throne of God. I will establish myself on the heights of the mountains. And he's saying to the women, what I feel to do, you can, you can do by eating this fruit. You can be equal to God. He's dragging her into his own sin. And she didn't realize it because, hey, she'd never encountered anything deceitful before. And I don't think this is the first time she's spoken to this, this being. You know, when you read in Ezekiel, it says that you were in Eden, the garden of God. Speaking about Satan and his fall from, from heaven. You, know, you, became, you corrupted your wisdom on account of your beauty, therefore I expelled you from the mountain of God. And so, they would, I think they saw him over the course of years in the garden and probably had conversations with him before. But on this occasion, he has become corrupted. And he brings his corrupted wisdom to the woman and said, you will become like God if you eat this. The only reason God said don't eat it is because he knows you'll become like him. And she gets drawn into that and gets fooled by it. And she eats the fruit. And she gives some to her husband. The Bible says he was at her elbow. He wasn't away somewhere else and why didn't he stop her? Why didn't Adam say, don't, God said not to? For a good reason. He said, we'll die. And they had no idea what death was because they hadn't experienced death. <laughs> and so they eat the fruit, both of them. What happened when the women ate the fruit? Nothing. But when the man ate the fruit, then the eyes of both of them were opened. And they saw they were naked. What does that mean, their eyes opened? Because the woman saw that the fruit was good for food and pleasing to the eye. Her eyes were already opened. She could already see. What does it mean, their eyes were opened? Well, they came into a place where they began to see the world from a different perspective. It was a little bit off-center. They began to, to live in a place where they judged good and bad, right and wrong. Because that's why they suddenly looked at their naked bodies. They'd been living with naked bodies for, I don't know, thousands of years, millions of years. But suddenly, after eating the fruit, they made a judgment that their naked bodies were not acceptable. And they began to cover up 
their bodies. They lost their innocence, they lost this purity, they lost this sense of, of nothing, I'm perfect, to I'm wrong, and began to cover up. Previously they had just related in their hearts to God. It had been a heart-to-heart -heart relationship. That's what intimacy is, it's a heart-to-heart -heart thing. And they, that something in their hearts began to dim. I think that's why Paul prays in Ephesians, I pray the eyes of your heart would be enlightened, that you might see the hope to which he has called you. Because the eyes of our hearts began to dim there in the garden. The eyes of our judgment began to open. And we began to decide and we decided then and there that being me is not good. Being me is not a good thing. I'm wrong. And I need to cover up my wrongness. Adam did it with fig leaves, we do it with all kinds of other things. Money, success, power, fear, knowledge, beauty. Because we judge that something is wrong with us. And Paul says, you know, the eyes of your heart, the means by which you relate to God had become darkened, they've been dimmed. And they need to be enlightened in order that you can come back into the place of intimacy with him. You know, he says, I pray that the Spirit, God will give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation that you might see him as he is. Or you might know him better, some translations say. And then he says, and the eyes of your heart would be enlightened to see the hope to which he's called you. And so something in us began to dim and darken as these eyes of judgment, this knowledge of good and bad and right and wrong began to come into our understanding. You see, God had said, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. And you see, there, there are, there's two wisdoms at play here. There's the godly wisdom which says, if you eat, you will die. He's not been harsh, he's not been cruel. He's saying, guys, if you eat this, there are terrible consequences of death, destruction, horror, sorrow, misery. That's what that death means. Because he's concerned with the long-term well-being of his children. He's not interested in the short term. He's thinking long-term for the whole of humanity. Guys, if you eat this, the consequences are terrible. Corrupted wisdom has no such concern. He just wants to drag mankind into his own misery. He wants to drag them into his experience of attaining to be like God and failing. Because that's, that's what his, Isaiah describes in Isaiah 14. Satan's attempt to become like God, to replace God even, and he fails in it. And what he's doing here is dragging mankind into that same experience. He's angry. Mankind have the existence in God's presence that he used to have. And as much as he hates what God has done to him, he hates mankind more. And he wants to bring us into his suffering, his misery, his horror. And he, he uses deceit and he hisses like a conjurer in the woman's ear. And they fall for the corrupted wisdom because it sounds great. I'll be like God. 
that sounds marvellous. I'll know all things and I'll, I'll, I'll understand all things and I'll be this amazing person. They didn't realise they were made amazing already. They were already like him. The very life that was in God was the life that had been breathed into them. They were like him already. But Satan was so clever, he, he implied that there is things that God is holding back from you. He's hiding something from you that will take you to an even higher plane. And I, I see that in Christianity. You know, buy my book, it's the seven steps to becoming a more spiritual person and as though there are secrets that you need to dig up and uncover by your own efforts. It's a false trail. You're already in his image. You already carry the life of God in you. You are already a son. You already participate, according to Peter, in the divine nature. You've just forgotten it and you haven't realised it. And so Satan uses all of these things to trick us. You have to follow these steps. You have to follow this plan. It's all lies. It's all lies. Just like he lied to the man and the woman in the garden. You have to do this to become more fully you. No, you just have to remain in your father's rest. Remain in the flow of his love to be who you were created to be. There are no secrets that he's hiding from you. No secrets at all. And what happens is they eat the fruit and there are immediate consequences. In other words, so these eyes of judgment are opened and it causes a change in their behaviour to take place a change in their awareness. You know, we read in Genesis 3, again, that the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So not only had they covered themselves up because they no longer liked what they were, but suddenly their relationship with God changed. I, I'm presuming that this was a common thing for God to come walking in the garden in the cool of the day that this was the normal pattern of life for them. And I'm, I'm presuming that up until that point, they had always come out to meet him and, and fellowship and, and enjoy each other's company and presence. And, and they would tell him all about their day, and even though he already knew. <laughs> but, but kids love to tell their mum and dad everything that's happened, and this and this and this and this and this. And so, but on this occasion, that's not what happens. They run away and hide. And in their hiding place, you know, it's kind of like you play hide and seek with your kids and they hide behind the curtains and you see their feet sticking out. And you know where they are, but you say, where are you? Well, God does that to them. He comes into the garden and he says, where are you? He knows where they are. He knows they're hiding in the trees. But the man answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. So there's three changes took place. He was afraid. 
As far as we know, he'd never been afraid of God before. There was nothing to fear. He became aware that something was wrong with him, even though it wasn't. We all live with that. We all think there's something wrong with us. There's not. There's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing wrong with you. <laughs> and then he hid because he thought something was wrong with him. It's interesting, isn't it? Because God had been with them for thousands of years looking at their nakedness. <laughs> but suddenly they thought it was wrong for God to see them naked. It was wrong for them to see each other naked. And everything begins to change. Death has already begun. You know, God said to them, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And so immediately there's this fear that comes into existence that wasn't there before. They're, f they're afraid of being seen for who they truly are. They're afraid that because they've done something wrong, they'll get punished. <laughs> That's all right, you won't get punished, you haven't done anything wrong. <laughs> Misunderstanding took root in their lives. I was naked and I hid. Nothing had changed in their circumstances. Nothing had changed in the garden. Nothing had changed in their appearance. But suddenly they decided that it was wrong to be them. I, I spent my whole life thinking it was wrong to be me. That somehow being me was a problem. Being me was wrong because, well, me being born caused my dad to become ill. Me being born caused us to be poor. Me being born caused my dad to die, me being born caused all kinds of problems. Me being born caused my family to divide and not speak to each other. I always wanted to be someone else. And I put on all my, my nice fig leaves. I was a tough guy, I was, I was cool, I was hip, I was all, you know, all of those things and I was intelligent and I knew lots more than you did and I had all of these different fig leaves. And the reality is there was nothing wrong with me. I'm broken, but God says there's nothing wrong with me. <laughs> How cool is that? When he looks at you, he says, there's nothing wrong with you. There is a brokenness in our beings because of what happened in the fall. There's a brokenness in humanity, but, but God sees beyond that. He sees who you were when he knew you before you were in your mother's womb. That's the lens through which he views you. And he looks at you and says, there's nothing wrong with you. I love you. You're my son, you're my daughter. And there's nothing wrong with you. But Adam couldn't hear that anymore. He began to look at life in terms of right and wrong and good and bad. And, and they lived in fear, they lived in shame. And there was the death of relationship, the death of intimacy with God. I mean, you know, God says, have you eaten from the tree that I told you not to eat from? And Adam hangs his head and says, yeah, I'm sorry, Dad. But he doesn't, does he? 
He says, that woman you put here, she did it. It was all her fault. In fact, it was your fault because you put her here. If you hadn't put her here, none of this would have happened, God. So don't blame me. What did the woman feel like? She wasn't called Eve at this point. She was just the woman. What did she feel at this betrayal? They had been so intimate, they shared a name. He was Ish and she was Isha, man and woman. And suddenly, this division comes. C.S. Lewis, the, the Christian writer, he said that when the man did that, a sword fell between the sexes. And what we have now today is this gender battle. But that's where it originated. It originated because of the fall. It didn't exist before then. And if we continue to perpetuate this battle of, for superiority between men and women, we continue to perpetuate the effects of the fall. And we perfectly demonstrate the fallenness of man. But if we are redeemed, if we are rescued from the empty, futile way of life that our ancestors have given us, we are also being rescued from the futility of gender divisions. There's, there's a death of knowing Father as he really is here. There's a death of knowing one another. And there's a death of human relationship and intimacy and communion too. There's a death of trust. Because the woman can no longer trust the man to, to be her, her support, her, her strength. He can no longer trust her. Because she made a decision that caused this fall and all kinds of things. Their innocence is lost. That sense of purity and and being okay with being who they are. The thing is, who changed when Adam sinned? Who changed? Adam. Did God change? No. God didn't change. Adam covers himself up, runs off and hides, but God carries out his normal routine of coming looking for his son to meet with him. See, Adam changed mankind's approach to God, but his sin did not change God's approach to mankind. It changed his approach to God, but God still looked on Adam the same way. He looked at God differently now, someone to be afraid of, but God still looked at Adam as someone to be loved. God didn't change. You see, sin can't affect God. Sin has no impact, no effect upon God whatsoever. That's what it means for God to be holy. Sin can't touch him. It can't affect him. That's why he can interact with sinful human beings. Because sin can't change him. Sin can't impact him at all. If God is the unchanging one, if he's the same yesterday, today and forever, then the God of the garden, the father that Adam knew in the garden, is the same father today. But we just can't see him the way Adam used to see him before the fall. We can only see him through the eyes that, that we've inherited from Adam after the fall. You know, he even said, God even says in, in the book of Malachi, I, the Lord, do not change, therefore you are not destroyed. He's saying, the love that I have for you has never, ever changed. 
my concern, my love, my joy over you has never changed. What's changed is how you relate to me. What's changed is how you come to me. What's changed is how you see me. But I'm still the same. And because I'm still the same, I don't destroy you. It's not who I am. This is incredible. This is not who we thought he was. You see, we've lived with Adam's misunderstanding. We've lived out of those eyes of judgment that Adam began to see open in his life. And we see God through the same eyes as Adam did after the fall. Oh, he doesn't like who I am. He doesn't like what I've done. I'm afraid he's going to punish me. I have to cover myself up and make myself acceptable. So Adam's sitting with his, his fig leaves on. Have you, have you, has anyone here ever seen, seen fig leaves? Mm -hmm. They're nice and shiny, but if you turn them over, they're a bit scratchy. They're not nice and shiny and smooth. Shiny and bright, smooth. So they're, they're nice and smooth like this, no rough edges. But on the, on the reverse side, they're quite rough. And that wouldn't be comfortable to wear in, in certain parts of your body. <laughs> it would be uncomfortable every time you moved. <laughs> but he puts them on. And not only does he put them on to cover his nakedness, but he goes into the trees to blend in. Look, I'm wearing green fig leaves. I'm in the green trees. I fit in. I'm a part of the. I'm a part of this. I don't stand out. And we do the same thing. We want to blend in. We want to fit in. And so we put on all of our own fig leaves, whatever that is. You know, we do it in church on a Sunday, don't we? How are you? How's the week been? Ah, oh, God's good. <laughs> you liar. <laughs> you know. How are you? I'm fine. Praise the Lord. That's your fig leaf. Because you don't want anyone to see what your struggles are. You don't want anyone to see what sins it is you've, you've been struggling with all week. That's a possibility, yeah. I've been in that place where I decided not to wear my fig leaves. And someone asked me how I was, so I told them. And they sat and listened and looked at me and got up and walked away. Because, not because they don't care, but they didn't know what to do with that honesty. And so I just put my fig leaves back on. How are you? Fine, praise the Lord. <laughs> you know, we, we, all, we, we wear our fig leaves to try and hide who we are because we think being me and having the struggles that I have is somehow wrong. But I tell you something, whatever you struggled with this week, I guarantee you, you're not the only one. I can guarantee you that, cast iron guarantee. Paul says that you do not struggle with any sin that is not common to man. Or woman. And so, Adam says, that woman you put here, she, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. And the Lord said to the woman, what is it you've done? And the woman said, well, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And so then the Lord God goes into cursing the serpent. 
He says, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. Now, God's not saying that this person, Satan or whatever, will literally become a snake that slithers along the ground. He's spelling out defeat for him. You know, if, if you're in a race and you're, and you're, be, you're running ahead of someone you, and you're going to win, you say, eat dust, don't you? You know, th that's a phrase you use to, to signify that you are tasting defeat. And so what God is saying is, you will taste defeat. And this is how it will come about. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. He's saying, I curse you because I'm setting the woman as your enemy. He's not saying that he's setting Satan against femininity. He's saying he's setting the woman against Satan. Wow. What he's saying is, you will taste defeat at the hands of the feminine. See, there's an interesting thing. You know when the, when the woman is created and God says, I will make a helper suitable for the man? Well, that Hebrew phrase is ezer kenegdo. Ezer is what we translate as helper and kenegdo is what we tra translate as suitable for him. That's not a good translation. Ezer is used about 20 122 times in the Bible. It's used twice in Genesis of the woman and the rest of the times it's only ever used of God. When God is your help. So in Psalm 121 we say, I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the, well, that word help in Psalm 121 is Ezer. Where does my Ezer come from? My Ezer comes from the Lord. Wow. You know, when Jeshurun is, is in the chariots, it says, who rides like the God of Jeshurun who, who comes to his help, his aid, his Ezer? And so we're talking about a situation where it's life and death and you need saved. God is your Ezer. And so he uses that word of the woman in Genesis. Genesis, the woman is the man's Ezer. His strong rescuer. That's much more powerful than just his helper. Because we translate a helper as someone who serves, who's a slave, who's a servant. That's not what the woman was created as. And kinegdo means one who is opposite but equal, a counterpart. And so what God said was, I will make someone strong who is the equal of the man and who can rescue him from his own stupidity. <laughs> that's, my, that's, my, that's my translation. <laughs> And so he's saying, this strength that I've put in the woman, it's not, not because she's female, but femininity. You know, I have femininity in me, so do all you guys. And you know, you have masculinity in you. But, but femininity is your strongest trait, and masculinity is our strongest trait. But what he's saying is, femininity will be what destroys your power, Satan. So not the masculine traits of aggression and violence, but the feminine traits of Gentleness, compassion, kindness. Oh, that's the fruit of the Spirit. <laughs> He's saying, this is what will overcome you, Satan. That's a whole other teaching. But So when he's saying to, the, to, the, to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman, he's saying, you have, you're in trouble, devil. 
Because the femininity in humankind is what will overcome you. Not just women. It's not, it's not about men versus women. It's about femininity. And the whole of history has been about Satan attacking femininity, hasn't it? You know, women are considered less than men. Women aren't equal. Women can't be pastors or priests or bishops or, you know, women can't be CEOs of corporations. Um, In some countries, women can't eat before men have finished eating. And if men finish the food, then the women have no food. In, In Honduras, you know, 51 women are murdered every month. And only 2% of the men are, are, are prosecuted, even though they know who they are. Because women are considered less. But what God is saying is that's not the reality. The, the, this whole thing about men being better than women and women being less, it's Satan's attack on femininity. Because he knows that that is what will overcome him. So in men, you know, what happens when you're a little boy and you cry, oh, don't be such a girl. Don't be such a big girl's blouse. Toughen up. You know, white, I'll give you something to cry about. <laughs> I think, I've already got something to cry about. <laughs> but because this is Satan's attempt to eradicate femininity from mankind. Because he knows that there's feminine traits that is going to overcome him. Instead of, you know, Paul says, we do not wage war as this world wages war. He's saying, we don't, we don't go in with, with masculine aggression and violence I'm going to have you I'm going to do you kind of attitude but we come with gentleness with love with compassion with kindness to overcome that spirit of the world and he's saying that is what will overcome Satan and so Satan I'm setting the woman against you and her offspring which ultimately is Jesus but but all of us too (laughs) as we walk in, in feminine ways and still, be, and still be strong men. And to the women he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. I don't understand that. I think what he's doing here is saying, this is what death looks like for the women. For the women, death looks like increased pain in childbearing. Death looks like your desire for intimacy being misused by your husband. You know, he says, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. See, and and in, the, in the broken masculine and the broken feminine, the desire for intimacy in women has allowed men to do- dominate and domineer. And the brokenness in men have taken domination. It's quite sad that this is the result of the fall. And when we continue to perpetuate that, we are just living in fallenness. And sin. You know, because because we see it happening when Adam calls his wife Eve. I didn't mean to go into all of this, but it, it, it fits here. She was previously just called woman. He was called man. But he renames her. You see, when God was looking for a suitable helper, if you like, when he, God was looking for an Ezer Kenegdo for Adam... He had all the animals pass before him and Adam gave them names. And in doing so, he, he, he sealed his dominion over them. You know, in, in lots of Eastern cultures today, it's still a belief that if you know someone's true name, you know, in lots of cultures, people have a public name, but they have a true name that they were given at birth. And if you know that true name, you can have power over them. 
And so Adam exercised his power over the animals by giving them their true name. And he thought he could do the same to the woman when he named her Eve. And what he did was illegitimately took dominion over the woman. And because of her desire for intimacy and relationship, she allowed him to do that. But it's not the way it was designed to be. This is what death looks like. It looks like men and women no longer in unity. It looks like husbands and wives at loggerheads for who is in charge. But neither was created to be in charge. They were created to live in partnership as equals. And so God goes on to describe what death looks like. He says that the ground is cursed, that it will be painful work that will cause it, that will produce food and we'll have to weed the ground of thorns and thistles and we will return to the ground from which we were taken. And so what we see as a result of the fall is gender division, hard work, pain, all of this stuff. Thank you for listening to the iDestiny podcast. For further information, check out www.idestiny.org.uk.